Today, we're talking to Michael from Dun & Bradstreet about the radioactivity of data and the art of gluing your team together. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I'm curious to know, have you ever come across any of these technologies throughout your career that just completely eliminate jobs? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think I think every new and great innovation like that, where, you know, there's been some new level of, of automation or some new level of orchestration that, you know, has been the, the jobs killer uh, of whatever, that particular era or that particular segment has always just sort of evolved into the next, the next level of complexity. So it's, they all come around and it just sort of forces the, the learning curve and enforces the, where you have to pay attention, but always getting more and more complex. So the, the easy stuff keeps getting automated away, but the hard, complex, more human things still remain in terms of getting out and being able to deliver that. So you can always count on that complexity, at least for now, continuing to, to sort of press people and press ideas forward. What type of cool technology are you getting to work on at Dun & Bradstreet? You know, it's, it's interesting. So if you look at my career uh, overall, I've been involved in some very big scale. You know, I started out in, I did four different startups. I've done managed services. I've, I sort of progressed my career. Of the four startups, three were complete failures. One luckily wasn't. And then it sort of propelled me into companies like Disney and Microsoft and, and others. But the interesting thing for me, prior to coming here at DNB, I was in the financial services industry. And, you know, you want to think about global problems at scale, the movement of money around the world. You know, you, that's a big set of challenges from a stability perspective, from a responsibility, you know, from an expectations uh, of the customers and the people receiving the money, sending the money. And there's a lot of complexity in that. But one of the things I found since coming to Dun & Bradstreet is data is uh, data's our business. And when you think about data being the business, a lot of people in technology think about, well, I've got a big data lake or I have a big data warehouse and it's not, you know, and it's not very significant. But the challenge is here at, at DNB is we do business with 206, I'll call it generically, governments around the world with 206 different regulatory regimes around the data. And I like to say that data is becoming increasingly radioactive. Where can it sit? Who can move it? How can it move? Where can it move to and from? You know, what are the regulations of what can be seen where and by whom locally uh, at a regional level? And so that increasing amount of, I call it radioactivity, um, is really making the data space maybe the, one of the most exciting and hard technology challenges to, to solve for. Because you're not, you're not dealing with things at a pure technology level. You're dealing with it at the, at the human level, at the politics and religion layer of, of technology, which, you know, can be pretty, pretty scary and pretty interesting. Um, but the complexity of being able to watch that and how that evolves and how that evolves on 206 different axes around the world is, uh, is pretty incredible. So my current big thing is probably not surprising the job that I have today, which is how do you solve for mass quantities of data? Data is just growing and growing and growing. Data around the data is growing and growing and growing. And then you have all these other regulatory and governmental oversight and all these other things that are coming into play, which are really making this incredibly complex, uh, you know, more complex than a lot of companies are really prepared to even deal with 
in terms of their own infrastructure, in terms of their own software, in terms of how they use that data, how they share that data, et cetera. So I think this is, it's a very interesting set of problems and uh, it's exciting to be a part of. Let's break that down a little bit. You yeah. solve for mass quantities of data, like how much data, what type of problems are you experiencing? Think about moving sort of in the magnitude of about five exabytes of data around the world every night. So that's an incredible amount of data to move around. And the nature of that data, because of the nature of the businesses we're in, is really far flung in terms of the focus areas, right? We have we have fraud data that we share with banks and financial uh, institutions. We have credit data. We have small and medium business, sales and marketing data. Uh, we have contact information. We have all of this data that moves uh, to different customers and different varieties that gets delivered via file transport in, in many ways. It gets, we have a, an extensive amount of API and API ingestion from our customers around the world. And if you think about it from another, another angle, we take in a lot of data. So it's not just us taking the data and publishing it out and pushing it out to our customers. It's also the amount of data that we have to ingest around the world to be able to get the, the analytics and insights to, to, to be able to create you know, the value for the data that our customers are looking for. So you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 80,000 unique data sources that get ingested in every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, all of that has to get processed. All of that gets, you know, unified. The data, you know, gets cleaned up. It gets deduped. It gets all of these things, and it gets put into uh, in the categorization for our software analytics in the in the product platforms that we have to go into it, look at it, extract the insights, and, and move that data around. It's it's a very complex, much more complex than to be, if I'm being completely honest, than I really had expected coming into the business. It's. Uh, uh, it's from a technology perspective, and I'm a, I'm a true geek and nerd at heart. And I would tell you that uh, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing to be a part of it. So I know Dun and Bradstreet. I got to talk a little bit about it with Anthony, uh, but oh, I okay. yeah, he's super super bright guy. Do you get to work with him directly or no? I work. Yeah, he's my boss. He uh, he and I work together, see each other every day. Dude, is he not like incredibly smart? <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> I met that I'm guy. <laughs> I got off that call and I was like, you know, Josh, I feel like a chimp. <laughs> he's just bright. Yeah. So, yeah, um, he's uh, every time you sit down with him, he has such incredible insights that uh, not even just from our own business, but taking in analogs and other things from other businesses. He's been uh, he's been a great kind of work for. One of the things that you said a minute ago was about fraud data. And I didn't know that, I don't know if you can talk about it publicly, but I didn't know that you guys were in that business. For me, as a business owner, I found out about you because somebody said, hey, we need your Dunn's number. And this was five years ago. And I was like, oh, what's a Dunn's number? Okay, I have to go get this Dunn and Bradstreet number. I got it and it looked like a business credit sort of scoring deal. And I was like, okay, cool. But it's a lot more than that. Can you tell me what it is? Yeah, I, mean, I think of the Dunn's number as sort of a universal ID that can be leveraged and shared across, you know, you may use it in your tax filings, you may use it in your uh, applications for loans from banks and small businesses. When you think of it, mean, we have a huge practice around trade data. So we collect, you know, who you do business with, who they do business with, which allows us incredible insights into things like the supply chain around the world, that being able to understand who does business with who, uh, how, uh, what those relationships look like, 
And then you combine that with the with the sort of the, the sales and marketing data, you get insights into who the officers of the company are, who has controlling interest. You get all sorts of under, unbelievable levels of understanding around the businesses and how business really truly works uh, around the world. And I think, you know, uh, we routinely get, you know, hit on and asked for information when you get into everything from not just business to business, but, you know, when when sanctions came out in the whole Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict, et cetera, understanding who does business with who is part and parcel of trying to figure out whether you're in violation of sanctions or not in violation of sanctions is unbelievably complex. And I, I would say the, the modern business world is becoming increasingly complex, like it's data, becoming more and more reliant on that data. And we sit, we're sort of like the the firm that you may not know is even there sort of looking at and, and getting this information and being able to to drive those insights for you as a customer or as a customer of the data to be able to figure out and, and make those assessments uh, of your, you know, of your potential customers as well. For the data about who's doing business with who, is that like something that they opt into in their accounting systems? Why would they do that? What's the benefit for them? Well, for that, for most companies, it's also, I mean, it's a way to establish credit. So you go into fraud. Now, the opposite side of that, obviously, is credit. And so not only like, look, I pay my bills on time. Here are the people that I pay my bills to. Here are my suppliers. Here's, look, I'm paying in my net 30, net 60, net 90. I'm I'm a good corporate citizen, uh, you know, inside the ecosystem. That helps build the overall credit profile of any particular business. So the addition of being able to track that and share that information, et cetera, has benefits to be able to say, you know, look, I'm more apropos to get a loan or look at how well or how strong my business is or look how deep my supply chain might be and be able and being able to source the parts and materials that I have to deliver a contract for one of my upstream cu- customers as well. So it gives it's uh, it, having that out there sort of available sort of helps helps the company itself from a credit perspective. It helps from a, you know, from a fraud perspective in general, make sure that the right people are doing business with the right people potentially. And then ultimately to, to really sort of ensure the, the security you know, of commerce today. I mean, maybe that's a little bit big and grandiose, but that's kind of the way I look at it. So you're like a giant API. Yeah, we got more APIs than uh, you can think of depending on the source of data, et cetera. We do our best to aggregate it so you can consume that as a, as a customer of, of ours. Are they putting in other metadata, for example, like other than just payment related stuff? You know, they have the vendor onboarding forms that you get. And we got one yesterday or last week that there was 47 questions on it. (laughs) It was a long one. It was a long one. You had the standard like, you know, what's your tax ID and your status and all that. But then it had a bunch about, you know, security, which is okay, Mm -hmm. cool, because we we were just doing like a sponsorship. We're not embedded in their company. So like, that's cool. And then there were 20 questions related to like slavery and uh, uh, pipeline, you know, obviously for like manufacturing companies and things like that. And all of this other other data, which, you know, obviously nobody wants slavery in their (laughs) supply chain, right? (laughs) But they were asking us for like our policy to prove that. And I'm like, well, like that's not really we're all American citizens and there's like 15 of us. So, <laughs> and so that, that metadata, that extra data is that, are they just holding that like at their companies or are they pushing it out farther? Would they be incentivized to give that data to you guys? Or is that just for them? So, so it's interesting. So what you're talking about is this, it's, it's part and parcel of the ESG initiatives, right? You know, 
SEC is going to require a bunch of uh, ESG, environmental sustainability and governmental controls in place. A lot of companies just keep that sort of in-house, whether that's shared or not shared in sort of up to individual companies on where to, where to share them. And that, that attestation that you were talking about where you, you know, they were asking you, do you do all these things? That may only be going back to the firm that asked you that question. But inherently, when you think about ESG and the requirements in all businesses around the world, it's very big, obviously, in Europe. It's big and it's becoming bigger and bigger here in the United States and around the world. These requirements for ESG continue to grow. And if you think about, like, if you wanted to get scored at an ESG level, that giant questionnaire that you were talking about, in some cases, even bigger, it's a self-attestation. So someone sends you the big document, you look at the big document, you score, you know, to your point, no, we don't do slavery. Yes, we use coal or no, we don't use coal. And you kind of fill out this large, large spreadsheet. One of the things that we have found, and, and, and by the way, it's self-attestation. So we kind of assume that you're telling the truth. Generally, the, the world assumes you're telling the truth until, you know, it's found out otherwise, or there's some, you know, upfront level of rigor to sort of go and do due diligence against that information to come back and answer it. One of the benefits that we found, and this was a big thing that dawned on us last this last year, was that we have, because of the trade data that I talked about earlier, because we have these deep relationships with ecosystems, different industries, ecosystems, et cetera, we know your addresses, we know the addresses of all your offices, we could compile um, a score in a report for ESG that was not a self-attestation, but we could actually go out. We had all the data. We knew where all the, we knew what the power makeup was in, you know, Istanbul. And we knew what the, and so we could be able to create, we were able to create a very interesting third-party observational ESG type of score and in, in view into your firm that we could also, you know, use and utilize that you could use and utilize that for picking potential partners or getting a score on yourself or looking at your own supply chain if you want to maintain a, a minimum ESG score with the people that you you know you do business with because it you know it, it transfers. I I do business with someone who does, you know, bad things or or uses, you know, maybe inefficient ways to do those things. I want to know about it as a as a supplier. So it was it was an interesting uh take on the metadata that we did. So we had the data and then it was really an extrapolation and an application of the metadata that we have along with some other pieces that was able to create this product. And that's, and that's pretty indicative of the data challenge around the world is the more data you have, the more insights, the more metadata gets created. And all of that has value. All of that has value if you know how to, you know, to apply it and where to apply it. And that's where the tricky bit comes in. Do you have data engineers and data scientists who are smart enough to to find these correlations or to the point you made earlier in the conversation, is there an AI aspect that's kind of looking for unintended, you know, correlations in this data or between data and metadata or between metadata and metadata? That's a lot of data, but, but, you know, in general, it's, it's a, it's a pretty exciting space to be a part of and to be, and to be involved in. Are we at that point with AI? I'll give you a quick example. So, Three or four months ago, I did a recap of all of our customers and I sorted them by 
the best paying customers, the ones we like doing business with the most and, and all of that. Uh, and then we tried to figure out like what's common between the top 20% of our, of our customers and extract insights. And you can go down this rabbit hole and create like a data swamp deal, but we were trying to figure out what's, what's the most interesting, valuable things. And I couldn't help but think about like, there must be some tool out there where I can just feed it my sales data and be like, tell me, tell me really interesting things about my sales data. You know, maybe I have a, maybe in North America, my closing ratio is like twice as, you know, long as it is in Saudi Arabia, right? Or just interesting things. Are we at the point where AI can just sift around data and come up with interesting things or no? I think we're at a point right now where that intelligence of drawing out those conclusions, it really depends on the data that you have and then sort of the the application of the AI and, and, and sort of deriving the, the deriving the answers. You know, there's a lot of weird sort of unconscious bias. As you interrogate the data, you're interrogating it from a perspective that may bias the answer or the result. And so getting it, I think there's still a lot of complexity in AI. AI is there. It can it can draw those conclusions as long as your initial question wasn't loaded with a certain set of bias uh, in terms of what the potential answer could be or lead that correlation into a certain direction. It's getting a lot better, don't get me wrong. I don't know if we're there yet. I, you know, you still need these data scientists who are able to, you know, to figure out these more interesting correlations. Uh, so I don't think the human is dead yet in that process, but in terms of the big heavy horsepower, the capabilities are there and the speed is there. And, you know, it's the speed and, and velocity at which that, that work can get done is at unprecedented levels in our society uh, as, a, as a, you know, as a creature upon this planet. It's, it's never been as fast as it is today. So there's no AI running loose on those five exabytes of data just emailing you interesting things about it? Internally there, of course. Yeah, internally we've got lots <laughs> of data that we're applying it in and we've got We've got data scientists that are uh, and data engineers that are constantly looking at what those types of algorithms are, are are producing and looking at, et cetera. But you know, a lot of it has to do with when you're when you're starting to deal with different businesses with different ecosystems and different dependencies. That's not something AI is going to know out of the gate. So understanding how to build for lack of a better term, a, a rules engine that sits over the top of that that can that can sort of ingest those, you know, those observations or ingest interesting tidbits of how certain industries work uh, and how they may or may not differ from other industries, there's still some things that have to be to be fed into the machine to be able to draw those things. And that's that's where industry expertise comes in. That's where deep ecosystem understanding of um, understanding that this is, they look the same, but they're not really the same in terms of how it works. You have to feed those models with the right sets of questions or the right sets of rules by which to to start doing that analysis. We have that both in, in terms of uh, systematic as well as uh, good old fashioned brain power doing the same, the same kind of work. Yeah, and we're seeing that in the public space because you know my wife it knows what the GPT three is, and she can she sign up and ask it questions, and everyone's getting really comfortable with these sort of systems that are just generating text, and I think we can all you know see the the future, and I you know when people see it. A lot of people were arguing on Twitter, as they do, you know, as artificial general intelligence and all of this type of stuff, right? And my whole thing was, okay, if it's smart enough to come up with answers, that's like step one. 
Um, because it doesn't need to have consciousness. It just needs a directive to go execute a series of recurring tasks, right? <laughs> like you, if you, it's like you built a knife and you're like, oh, it's not going to cut unless if I tell it to cut. It's like, well, if you put yourself on a loop telling it to cut, it's just going to cut all day, right? So it's pretty interesting to see what's going to happen with this AI in the next five years. But man, am I looking for all the different use cases as it comes up? And it's, I mean, we, we saved probably 20, 30% of our producers' time at the company just off of this one tool that's like, hundred bucks a month. It's crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. That's great. I, but I, I think to your point, it's, it's telling you where things are, you know, where things are going. Increasingly though, it's you asked it the question to get you or your, your, your producers asked it the question to figure out what to go solve for. And that's the piece that we're not necessarily there just yet, right? You, we're still counting on you to figure out where I can solve that, you know, to ask the question of where I can save that money is a big deal. And we're, we're getting there, but it's not, it's not, we're not at Skynet yet. There's no Terminators <laughs> yet, but uh, hopefully not anytime soon. No, no. Yeah, because it would be so interesting to just feed the chat GPT all my business data, like everything I have from Slack messages and everything, and just say, how can I improve my business? And have yeah. it just spit out a list of like, you don't know about this tool, you're not using it, and you know it's very efficient for what you're trying to do. And you know if it could just put money in my bank account, that'd be cool too. <laughs> <laughs> As long as it doesn't conduct podcasts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I enjoy that. But that is one thing that I think it will not go away for a while. The human to human interaction. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be novel to have the deep fake type AI, maybe do an interview with, you know, something that's realistic to a human or, or something of that nature. But humans like to get together since we've been gathering around the campfire. And I think yeah. we'll do that all the way through the AI apocalypse. So <laughs> uh, look, I you're right. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I've been a part of big transformations for most of my career, going in, driving big change in companies. And people ask, you know, they'll ask me, they'll be like, what What's your secret in being able to be successful at it, et cetera? And it's interesting to me that I can, we can, you could talk about business processes. You could talk about technology, transformational approaches. You could talk about going to the cloud or you could talk about these things. But at the end of the day, being able to connect with other humans on a common, you know, to your point, we are wired to sit around that campfire and tell each other stories and connect at a level that that is that is meaningful, that you don't get out of a business book or you don't get out of a, a technology application, you don't get out of AI. And I think to your point, when you're coming into companies that have transformative agendas to be able to transform or modernize, et cetera, understanding that that human dynamic and being able to connect with those, with the humans around you to be able to drive the passion or you know ignite the fires inside people to drive that, that transition is probably the most important thing. At least that's what I found as a as a CTO. That's the that's the raw natural resource that you want to go fight for. That's the thing that really matters. That's the thing that will get you to a transformative end state. Uh, it's not necessarily just the tools that you bring to to bear. It's that it's that human element that uh, is so important. So I agree with you 100. percent I think it's fascinating how the trend is after all of these episodes and talking to all of these technologists that. 
you start off with thinking the technology is the most important thing, the tools, and and then you slowly learn, some people quicker than others, and always pain involved, about how important the humans are. And then, you know, so if I talk to startup people who are in their 20s, it's tool, 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 data, data, data. And if I talk to people who are running, you know, Verizon <laughs> or NASA, <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, growing people, it's all about the people. And they're these like very experienced engineers. So they aren't just, you know, a lot of engineers would like to write off some of the executives as, <laughs> oh yeah, they're just, you know, kind of technical and they just, but man, you get people like Kyle Malady from Verizon who can just spin up conversations about frequencies and, and everything, every little nook and cranny of, of the pipeline of technology at Verizon. And he's a good leader. It's like, it's just fascinating to talk to them. Yeah. Look, I think, I think, that's what makes the difference, right? That's the differentiator. That's the the force magnifier for any company. Having being able to combine those two things together will get you will get you everywhere. So, what's your day to day look like right now as a CTO? Uh, you know, we're at year end, so it's a big mad rush to complete uh, a bunch of projects. We've you know we had probably uh, six or seven hundred different project initiatives in the company over the course of the last year, which we've. Uh, we're wrapping up just the last little bit of it, so we've had a very successful year from a technology uh, perspective. And and honestly, right now it's it's all about planning for next year. What are we what are we putting our uh, our our money on? Where are we putting the resources to continue to further both the transformation that we're going internally as well as you know the features and functionality and capabilities of the products uh, for the next year. So it's a for a lot of people, it's kind of the time of year where things slow down. Uh, it's the time of year here where things start to to speed up, and you're really having to think aggressively about what you're going to get done in the in the next year or so. And that's my favorite time of year, actually. Uh, holidays aside, it, it's really more. Uh, this is you get to spend maybe a little bit more of your time on the strategic as well, as, you know, and the planning of where you want to go uh, as you wrap up sort of the last bits of, of what you've been able to achieve. So, so this time of year right now. That's what's exciting. That's what my day is, day in and day out. Come in and sort of forge the future. I can tell you're a highly productive person because I'm that way. I tell everybody, you know, all the big improvements to the website or whatever will happen in the November, December time because when there's a lot of, like, trust me, I enjoy the holidays. I spend them with my family. Like, I have a good work-life ratio, right? But there is such thing for me as too much time off. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, sometimes when the way the weekends land or whatever, I've got a day or two where I'm just like anxious and I, and so I'll just go do some work. And that's when, I, so I, in, in my mind, I'm always like, okay, December is when I'm going to put together that one project. Cause I'll have a couple, a couple spare days to do something fun. Yeah. I think we view ourselves as productive. I would tell you, my wife is probably got a different <laughs> uh, perspective on that, uh, on that wonderful treat that we both have. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> But I do want to talk about volatility in the marketplace. Yeah. One example for me is I told you at the beginning of the show, we make these shows for other people. And often the people that are hosting the shows are high level executives at the company, COOs, CTOs, CEOs, right? And across all of our shows, we're seeing marketing teams come and go. And it's kind of crazy because we'll have these contracts and we'll have these people. And then all of a sudden, the whole team, like eight people are gone and there's someone new coming in. And so we'll just have to have, you know, the conversations. So I'm sitting here, you know, I hear in the news that things are crazy. 
my revenue is doing fine. I'm not freaking out yet, but I'm also staying as lean as I, you know, possibly can while continuing to grow. And then I start seeing these, you know, this little transition happen over the past two months. Cause you heard about recession all the way since summer, right? But I didn't see yeah. anything happening. Now I'm seeing these executives teams start to shake up for lack of a better term. Are we going to see more of that? Are you seeing that at all? Yeah, look, I think I think we're heading into some pretty interesting times. Interesting to find like scientifically interesting and not necessarily positively interesting. To your point, the first signs with people talking about recession started happening, you know, months ago. There's always a lag on that. And usually people don't define when a recession happens until it's over or until you're like really, you know, really into it. But you know, we we're seeing you look at the you look at the the challenges in the marketplace, we're seeing a lot of trepidation from our customers, from other consumers uh, of like what's going to happen. There's a lot of there's a lot of hesitation that's going out there to try to figure out where is this going to end up. That we you know we talk about whether we're in it or we're not in it. You got different economists talking about whether we're in it or not in it. I haven't heard too many people say we're not going to be in it. So I do think that take a step back and look at the entire ecosystem. You are seeing some hesitancy. And I think that hesitancy is something to be to be wary of. I think a lot of people are wanting to be a little bit more cautious. We definitely see that even in our own approach. We don't want to go crazy like gangbusters unless we understand, you know, what, what the market conditions in a larger ecosystem looks like. Our customers are doing the same thing and having the same conversations with us. So I think whether it's a real recession, a half a recession, the recession's over, I'm not sure. You definitely see a lot of, a lot of hesitancy uh, and you see that even in terms of, you know, from our perspective, from a data perspective, we have certain segments of the of the of the world that are consuming. You know, think about fraud, right? The amount of people trying to consume more and more data about fraud, who's going out of business, who's got who's got strong supply chains, who has all of those things. Yeah, that business for us is is taking off. The the more opportunistic ones, you look at it and you go, wow, you know, is that you know, is now the time to be doing brand new marketing campaigns for something? So you see this this hesitation in the market uh, across different product suites, and one of the benefits that we have at, at DMB is, you know, the the mix of products we have sort of serves regardless of which way the the market is going. Uh, you know, if it's going up in a recession or we're having a big you know uh, bull market or something, we we have the ability to kind of to shift you know shift the weight on our legs to to where it's going. But absolutely, we definitely see that volatility out there. I don't know if I would call it volatility in the sense of super bad things happen, but I would definitely sort of define it as a hesitancy, I guess. Got it. So it's just like little tremors. You're seeing just some little stuff happening here and there. Yeah. I think it's just, there's a lot of people being cautious, right? Yeah. I think there's a, is, if it is, if it is going bad, I don't want to jump too fast, too far. I'll keep taking the baby steps to make sure I do, I make the right decision or that I have the ability to, to redirect in a different way if I need to. And I think you see that, you know, all over the place. Yeah. I mean, our business was born out of COVID. We were licensing our interviews as leadership content. And then in one week, we lost 90% of the revenue. And then we started taking on sponsors. And then we grew it to a million dollars a year. Yeah. And then we did that for two, three years. And then we started making the shows for other companies. But, and that's why I like to ask about, you know, executives like you who are really in it, who are around of a lot, a lot of data, like, what are you seeing? Cause I'm trying to figure out like what everyone's kind of trying, we're like walking in the dark, you know, we're trying to figure out exactly, are we at the place where everything's really cheap and, and like, we should jump on stuff and make investments. And it doesn't feel like that. It feels like everyone's kind of just holding, holding the purse strings pretty tight and, and waiting to see what happens in Q1. 
I think you're going to see that hesitancy probably. I mean, am I? And I'm by no means an economist, so I'm a technology guy, so I'm probably the last person you should talk to about that. <laughs> I would say that, uh, you know, in general, uh, I think you're seeing that pretty much across the board. One thing I can guarantee you is the moment that we should be buying because we're at the lowest point, et cetera, I will guarantee you I will miss that window. Yeah. Uh, regardless. So, <laughs> regardless of the data that I have access to, I, I will probably still miss it. I know it's always hard. It's always hard to see. Well, you can't really predict it. It's just kind of something you realize. But I want to. I'm curious to know all of your data. Do you have a product that's like a small business product that would compete with something like a Zoom Info? Do you know Zoom Info? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we have Hoover's, which has been around for a very long time. We've continued. Hoover's has been a product of ours that really focuses in same market as they as they are in. Uh, you know, but it benefits from the scale and the breadth of the data that we have on an international basis is fed into the same level. So yeah, we absolutely have, have products in that same space that, that compete uh, exceptionally well in that, in that market. I want to give them a try. We use Zoom Info pretty heavily. And after you talked about all this data, I was like, I might as well just ask if he has it. <laughs> um, so how do, I, how do I learn more about that? What do I do? Well, you can obviously go to the DNB website, which is dnb.com to learn more about our products and services. You know, we have a lot. So the one thing I would say is be a little patient because you look through, uh, I talked about, all the different markets and all the different data tools and you know assets that we have inside the company, but yeah, you'll find it. It's pretty. It's pretty easy to find in the, the SMB space on the uh, on the website. All right, SMB and it's called Hoover's is like the platform name. Yep. Awesome. Uh, I'm I'm always looking for alternatives, and I've explored three or four, and I haven't found anything that's better. And so I haven't come across Hoover's, uh, and so I'll check it out. Yeah, look, I, in fairness to the to the entire industry, the, the staleness of the data is sort of directly proportional to the volume and velocity of how business moves around the planet. And so as you go through that, you know, as you go through that from a data perspective, the volume of data that changes, you know, data that's 20, depending on the data set, the data is 24 hours old, may have great data or bad data, depending on your use case, et cetera. So really dialing that in and, and solving the, I'll call it the staleness, maybe that's the wrong word, but the the understanding of when does that data change? How often does it change? What's the velocity that it changes inside the systems? How much is that how long does it take for that to get published out? It's a very it sounds like it should be an easy problem, just speaking candidly about myself. To me, that sounds like, wow, that's a very easy technology problem to solve for. But when you think about how often data can change or where it can change or how, you know, what the velocity of that change could be and is useful for the people that consume that data. It gets it gets very complicated very fast. So it's definitely it's not for the faint of heart. Seems easy at the top at the so, at the top side, uh, but when you get into the into the nuances of the, how that would mechanically work, um, it's uh, it's challenging. Yeah, Anthony got into a little bit of that with me because I was I was exactly that. I was like, oh, it's not that hard. And then he just started talking about how they do it and the cases they run into and how they solve for certain things. And I'm sitting there like, you know, slack jawed, like, oh my goodness, this is incredibly <laughs> complex, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, the audience is mostly technology leaders, people that want to grow and improve in their career. I'm curious to know, we were just talking about like volatility and uncertain times. How do you keep your team focused and on track? You know, I, it, having a clear plan is important, right? So understanding the work, uh, if you think about what we do here, my relationship with the head of our product and the head of business, whether it's that of Business Internationally or the, we're here in North America, 
the product teams, we have to stay glued together to be able to make sure that the goals and deliverables that the teams from a technology perspective are working on are completely aligned. And that's that's a hard thing to do. Uh, if you, if you think about you know there's a new there's a new you know cool thing that's happening out there. Let's let's shift. Let's adjust our products to be able to get there. Being able to move quickly against a set of plans and understand those impacts is really is really tough. And it's part of the transformational journey that I've had here at, at DNB, which is how do we become more agile? Not not in a development sense, although certainly part of that as well when you think about agile development, but really the agility of being able to sort of pick up, change direction very quickly and get, you know, get resources on problems faster. It requires a level of alignment that is not necessarily technical in nature. It's because the whole the whole of the of that body has to move in unison together. It can't just be a tech thing. It just can't be a product thing. It has to be both of those moving moving together. And keeping people engaged in that process boils down to, and, and we talked about this with the with the campfire story that we talked about. Communication, if you, if, if you boil down any success that I've had in my career, the ability for me to communicate the changing needs and the challenges that the company's having and being able to change and, and, and communicate the, the ch- why the changes are and you treat people like adults and you treat people and say, I'm willing to give you a handle, you know, hand you information that's imperative that we make this change to. And you do that in a clear and transparent way. I have found that teams respond to that very quickly and they get used to that level of communication that allows us to, to move agilely Again, not development route necessarily, but move agilely to be able to move our products in a quicker succession to where we need to go. I, for example, I send out a note out to my organization every Friday. And the note is, it's a little bit more informal. The note is, here's what we've done well. Here's what we've really sucked at. Here is the things we should be getting better at. Here's the things that we need to be focusing on. Here's the big push on products. Here's what we're seeing in the marketplace. We talk to the technology community at large to make sure they understand the drivers of why we're making. If we have to make a change, why are we making that change? If there has to be a shift, why are we making this shift? What's the value of that shift? And you have to trust that the people are going to be responsive and understand. And if they don't, be open to receiving those that communication back to say, I don't, I don't know what that means. You're talking, you know, how is that even related to this? Or I'm a I'm a I'm an infrastructure person that does you know router configurations. I don't know how I tie what you just said to my job. And you're, it's your job as in my case the CTO or as any technology leader is to draw the bridges, to draw the connections, so that the teams can understand it. And once they're lined up, there's no telling how fast your organization can go and how much change or how much you know you can accomplish from a product perspective or or stability perspective or whatever angle you're going to look at that through. Is the communication a cultural aspect that was instilled by the founders? So for sure for me, because I'm I'm relatively, you know, new, I've been here a couple of years inside the company. The founders at DMB, DMB is a 200-year-old company, and it's gone through many different changes and evolutions in its career over that 180 years. But always at the at the core of it, the way I think about it is way back in the beginning, there would be people that would ride their horses into a into a town and go, oh, Joel's the blacksmith and Josh is the grocery store owner and take that information back. You know, it would be in big ledgers. It would be, but it was always sort of in and around data. And we have that consistency all the way through 
of that data as being sort of the primary base element for, you know, 180, 200 years in the company. But that touchstone of getting to the people and making sure those people are aligned, I think is more important, especially in my own belief system, in a transformative, you know, position where we are in the company of really being, you know, shifting gears into an aggressive growth culture to be able to make sure that that communication is key. And so, you know, it, it's probably always been there, but, you know, we've given it some extra some extra steroids and we make sure that it's there, it's common, it's consistent. People, you know, people know every Friday they're going to get the, the weekly mail from me and maybe it's good or maybe it's bad or maybe it's, you know, whatever it happens to be. But, you know, just talking in a in a plain voice around things that people, you know, care about matter and, and drawing the lines that might be harder to see is, is important. Did you pick that skill up from like a mentor or a leader that you had? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a hard fought lesson, you know, as a, I mean, I, I came out of school, a coder, moved into telecommunications and then infrastructure, et cetera. And I think, you know, especially people like me, however you want to define that, right. They come out thinking it's all about the the raw, pure intelligence. And of course, this should be something that everybody understands if they put three seconds of thought into this. But, you know, your own experience starts to shade the way you communicate and how you think about that. And you constantly have to take a step back. And I, I, had, a, I had a couple of different career mentors who really reinforced that with me, that the value of what that can bring and, and being able to bring a lot of people along with you it was a hard-fought lesson, but eventually sunk in. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I want to watch the time here. We've got uh, five minutes or so to wrap up and get you on to your, your next adventure. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to get out there to the world? I don't know if there's anything additional. I would say that we talked a little earlier about that radioactivity of data, and it's a hard problem that I think a lot of companies have sort of it's not necessarily on their radar, right? If you're a big data company or you consume lots of data, it might be a little bit more. But you think about the changes that if you're a company that does business with Europe and you think about all the changing requirements, and I'm not talking about just GDPR. I'm not talking like, you know, there's the EU, they have a set of requirements and then there's individual nation states inside the EU that have little twists and turns on their own interpretation of, of data privacy or what kind of data, whether or not business data is considered part of the, uh, the PII or, you know, or, or personal identifiable information. How do you think about those things? That's changing at a, at a, at a nation state level and a sub, you know, state province level. Even in some cases, you're starting to see emerging changes at a, at a city or local locale or region level where those things are starting to become more complex. And you as a business are not going to get a free pass because you don't necessarily know that, you know, data in Spain, in this state of Spain, in this city has these requirements. How are you going to manage through that? How are you thinking through that? How are you thinking about the fact that all EU citizens' data, EU citizenry's data is supposed to be stored in France or in the EU, or there are certain countries you can't put it in. This is an area where I think that there's a, a coming tsunami of change and challenge that the industry as a whole, regardless of what industry, whether you're talking healthcare, whether you're talking financial services, whether you're talking, you know, even just general sales information, how do you, you know, or, or retail or your payments or all of these things, that's a level of complexity that I think is, is on the horizon 
that we're going to start having to deal with maybe in, in smaller waves at the beginning, but at some point that volume and velocity of change is going to come in and, and disrupt us all if we don't start thinking about those challenges now. I have the I have the benefit or maybe the horror and terror of having to deal with this on a global basis. Uh, and so I can see these signs coming a little bit faster. I see these emerging challenges uh, around the world from Asia, from Europe, from South America, from from here in the U.S. and North America. It's something that, uh, that uh, you know, it's not a clarion call to arms or anything like that, but I think we got to start preparing for that as a as an industry or any technology professional who deals with uh, with data. It's something we have to be wary of. Do you have a product that helps you with that? Boy, if I, if we had that, we'd be uh, no. We don't have a we don't have a product yet to deal with all of that. But it's a level of again the complexity there is really significant, and it's this it's at the strange intersection of technology, but also legal. And also, you know, there's like, you know, how, think about any company's legal department. We have a great legal department here, but are they really dialed into changing privacy and data laws in Luxembourg? I don't know. I'm picking countries at random, but like, it's a harder challenge to solve. And it's a harder challenge to solve technically in terms of understanding how you build out a solution in that space. Yeah, it's tough because they will sue you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Especially yeah. if you if you give some sort of like we attest that this data is true and accurate and moved in the right way, so yeah. it's uh, it's something I think that a lot of co- a lot of the big companies, a lot of the multinationals are starting to struggle with. Um, but it's not if you're on eBay and you're selling something to someone in Germany, are you in violation of German law? I don't know. I don't pretend to be a lawyer, but it's it's uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, it definitely is. You're already starting to see it in some of your products and services where they'll ask me, like I registered for something the other day and it asked me where I wanted my data center to be. And it wasn't like I was spinning a server up. I was just joining a SaaS application and I I clicked the, you know, North America region, but they had other regions in there too. And I just assumed that that's to handle some sort of country specific, you know, at first the conversation was just US and I think California was pushing a lot of it too with their compliance for handicap websites and things like that. But then you saw it over in, you know, the UK and all those were the two main conversations, but people forget there's like hundreds of other countries. And while two are on our radar, causing entire industry buzz to get these things like sorted out, if other countries start deciding that, which you clearly that's starting to happen, we're going to have to have some sort of tools that are going to help us at least manage. There's obviously going to be no magic button because you're going to have to fundamentally change how you store data in an application, right? But there's going to need to be some sort of tool or service or something that helps you manage the compliance and then Manage your risk because, you know, I'm, we're not going to comply to 300 different countries' things. We'll just comply with maybe like the top three or four. Well, it depends on where you do business, yeah. right? And, and or where your customers are or where your customers' customers are, you know, if you're a platform and service. So very complex thing, problem to start thinking about. And uh, again, not sure people are thinking about it, but it is out there. And it is a, uh, the level of the waters rising. That's what I would say. Well, thank you so much. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Feel good. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.